I do want to add my uh, word to what uh, Troy shared with you a little bit earlier about the Even Better Christmas books. They are available right there at the center table, and they are also available in the uh, front foyer or lobby, whichever you're most, or narthex, depending on what you'd like to call it. It just kind of summarizes where we're going during Advent in a casual way that you can break the ice as a gift to uh, people that you know and love. Well, I have found that after two years of a pandemic, many of us were hoping that this Christmas would be better than the last two. We were hoping for something better, but hopefully we will find something that's even better. The end of this week, it was announced that there is a new Omicron variant. Now, I don't know how they got to Omicron because we were just at Delta. And knowing the Greek alphabet, Delta is about the fourth letter of the alphabet, and Omicron is the 14th letter of the alphabet. So I don't know what happened to the the 10 letters in between, but somehow we jumped from Delta to Omicron. But what if the quality of your Christmas was not dependent upon world events? What if the quality of your Christmas was not dependent upon local circumstances or family quarantines? What if supply chain, inflation, or travel restrictions have nothing to do with the best Christmas ever? Over the next four weeks, we will be looking at four ways that God can help you to have an even better Christmas than you imagine. Now, I have never been a big fan of astronomy. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I, I just have never experienced the wonder that befalls others when they consider space. Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon when I was just four years old. So for all of my memory, going to and from the moon has never been that impressive. But I know many of you long for the day that we would reach that achievement. However, one astronomic event does carry significance for me. Because Four days before Christmas, on the first day of winter, we will experience the shortest day of the year. Now, this is important to me because December 22nd, we will have more daylight than December 21st. And each day after that, we will have more and more light until late June. Well, while stars and And planets don't stir my imagination. Light that overcomes darkness does make me happy, happy, happy. In the famous words of Uncle Si. See, God's past performance gives me great confidence in the promises he has made for my future. Because God does plan a better future for us. 
Just as light overcomes darkness, God's promised future is better than our current reality. And so if you look in your uh, sermon guide, you will see the first point I want us to think about is the fact that they groaned. In Exodus chapter 2, during those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue of slavery came to God. Now, let me set the stage for us rather quickly about the darkness that existed in Egypt that caused the people to groan. In Genesis chapter 12, and again in Genesis 15, God made three specific promises, a people, a place, and prominence. Now, he didn't use those words, but those three Ps are easy to remember, aren't they? God made three promises to Abraham regarding his descendants. But by the end of the book of Genesis, Abraham's great-grandsons relocate to Egypt to survive a regional famine. By Exodus chapter 1, the first chapter of the second book of our Bible, the people were multiplying, they were gaining prominence, It appears that two of the three promises God made to Abraham were in place. But in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 1, a new king turns the tables from abundance to servitude almost overnight. According to Acts chapter 7, these... uh, These events in Exodus 1 and 2 take about 80 years. Moses kills an Egyptian bully at the age of 40. Then he goes to live in the desert of Midian for 40 more years. So these verses in Exodus about the people crying out to God after the new king came is about 80 years of servitude, 80 years of darkness, 80 years of oppression. For 80 years of harsh slavery and cruel politics brings us to chapter 2 of Exodus, verse 23, where we read that during those days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. I noticed the direction of their complaints. They weren't just belly aching for the sake of belly aching. They had a groan that approached the very throne of God. They had a directed Complaint. Notice the direction of their complaint. Their cry went up to God. They didn't just complain to one another. They didn't just need good thoughts and positive energy from others. I saw a report this week that less than 6 out of 10 people in America directed their thanks to God. 
Over four out of ten of those who did express thanks express it to someone or something other than God. This week, many people thank their friends or they thank their family for their love and the support that permitted individuals to reach their goals. I read one article in Psychology Today from two years ago that identifies the Thanksgiving holiday as an American custom where we thank America for the opportunities that she has granted. Some of us are thanking our friends. Some of us are thanking our country. But the story in Exodus chapter 2 says that when the Israelites complained, their groaning was directed to God. When things are dark and oppressive, do we just curse the dark to one another? Or do we light a candle? But what if nobody has a match or a flint or a fancy schmancy lighter like we used here today? We curse the dark, we want light, but nobody has the means to generate that light. I got weary several years ago of the Survivor reality show, but I know some people really love it each year that comes out. That show has sparked other survival-type programs, but almost all of them start the very first day that the survivalists appear in whatever land. They have a desire for water and a desire for warmth. And water and warmth both depend upon someone in the group having the ability to create a fire. And the Israelites looked around and nobody had the ability to create the fire that was going to get them out of their slavery and out of their oppression. It did no good for them to complain to one another. But when their groaning went to God, God had the ability to bring light into their darkness. The first part of verse 23 here in Exodus chapter 2 actually sounds to me like contestants arriving on the beach during a rainstorm and discovering that nobody has a flint, a lighter, or matches. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. And no one had the ability to bring light to their darkness. Well, fortunately, for the future of Abraham's descendants, it did not swing on their resourcefulness because notice the next two verses. That it was God who heard, God who remembered, God who saw, and God who knew what was happening in Egypt. Because God heard their responses, God heard, remembered, saw, and knew. As we see in verses 24 and 25. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, I told you last week that this word here, God heard, involves sound, thought, and a response. It's not just that I heard your words, 
But I heard your words, I thought about what you meant, and I responded. That's what it means that God heard. It's not like we were watching football when the wife starts to tell us about the kid's report card. I actually heard, and I thought about it, and I responded appropriately. The word remember that follows there, that God remembered his covenant, is not, I suddenly remember what I came into the kitchen for. This word remembered is not as if I didn't know, but now I remembered. It's actually more of a reflection that leads to interaction. When, when he remembered and, and he reflected upon the covenant, which prompted him to action. So his hearing brings him to action. His reflection brings him to action. And then it also says that God saw. One of the nuances of this word saw, or to be seen, is the idea of to inspect. It's not just that he noticed what was happening in Egypt, but he inspected what was happening. Eighty years earlier, Joseph saw his brothers, and he knew who they were, but they saw him but did not recognize him. So seeing is not always recognizing. And so just as G so Joseph did some back and forth with his brothers to inspect their attitudes before he revealed who he was. And just as Joseph inspected the attitude of his brothers before he revealed himself, I think this word saw means that God inspected the hearts of the Israelites to see how they would respond if he revealed himself. Because just as Jesus healed ten, but only one returned to give thanks, I believe verse 25 of Exodus chapter 2 is telling us that God evaluated their condition. He saw the Israelites, he saw Egypt, he remembered the promise that he made to Abraham, and he evaluated their condition and how they would respond if he intervened. So we see that God heard, he remembered, he saw, and then it just simply concludes with God knew. Now this word that God knew, K-N-E-W, is the hardest for us to translate. Because this word to know is a word that comes out of experience. For example, as many of us know about Patrick Mahomes, but we know Mitch Budke. They're both quarterbacks. One we know about, the other we know from experiences. And, and it's this second type of experiential knowing that is at the root of the last word of Exodus chapter 2. It, it, it can also carry the idea not only to know from experience, but to make oneself known. In other words, God did something that caused them to know of their relationship together. The word can carry the idea to make oneself known, to be seen, to become known, or to be discovered. And so this wrapped up in those two words, God knew, 
It's a whole world of experience of God and the Israelites being reminded of their relationship together. The, the same word for know or knew appears back in chapter 2, verse 14. What happens in Exodus 2, 14? Moses had killed an Egyptian, and he became afraid that it was known what he did to the Egyptian. He thought that that event had come to light. He thought that that event had been exposed. And so this word at the end of chapter 2, God not only knows the heart of the Israelites, but he was discoverable to the Israelites. See, God saw, God remembered, God, um, or first he heard, then he remembered, then he saw, and then he re-entered into that experiential relationship of, I will be their God. They will be my people. The people will know that God has a special relationship with these descendants. I think the text is telling us that in response to the darkness and the cries of the slaves, Yahweh decided to act. He intervened because of his promise to Abraham. When he inspected their hearts, the experience of relationship was restored. All as a response to groaning because things are not as they should be. And God responded by initiating a plan. For look at the very first word of Exodus chapter 3. In response to God knowing the people, now God's plan kicks into place. Now, the response to the darkness of the Hebrew slaves started immediately because of that word now. But it would take some time for it to be realized. Some of you have a tree, have a, a gift under a tree. That gift has been purchased. That gift has been identified as yours. That gift is as good as opened. But it's not been opened yet. You have to wait in Advent for the opening of what is already yours. And I believe that as the people groaned, God immediately started a plan that's going to take time to reveal itself. Moses' reticence will create some delays. Pharaoh's stubbornness will require some convincing. And when the Israelites get to the very border of their land, they'll need a 40-year theology lesson. And who it, was, who it is that they are to serve when they enter into the new land. Things will look even darker during this delay. But God had initiated a plan. Each person in Egypt would experience the plagues. Each family would taste the grief of the oldest child dying. Pharaoh's entire army would be drowned. An entire generation that left Egypt never saw the victory of Jericho. 
See, times were dark in Egypt. But God was at work to bring a better future. Now, why am I talking about ancient Jewish history in the land of Egypt? Because I believe that the light that dawned in Egypt is a bridge to the Bethlehem story. As we consider light breaking into darkness in the Bethlehem story, we actually read that the uh, prophet Isaiah wrote, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. He prophesied of a day that light will break into their dark existence. And then actually in Luke, Simeon, an old man in the temple, declares that Jesus is that light that they had been waiting for. Simeon says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Isaiah prophesied that there would be a light. Simeon said that Jesus is the light. And as a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus begins his public ministry and Jesus identifies himself as the light that shined in the darkness at the pivot of time. For Jesus said, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death... On them a light has dawned. And at the fullness, the appropriate, at the right time, God sent forth his Son. We read in Galatians chapter 4. See, Jesus himself, not only did he say, I am the light of the world, Jesus made some very bold claims about being light in darkness. For Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. At just the right time, God responded to Egyptian darkness with the light of a fire in a bush that did not burn. At just the right time, God sent forth his Son into a dark world. When Jesus ascended back into heaven... His great light was taken away and was divided into smaller flames that indwell you and I as believers. Now we possess that dim light of the Spirit of God within us, but we long for that bright light again. We're driving across a dark night and we long to turn on the high beam so that we can see better what is there. We have some light. Our path is illuminated but we yearn for a brighter picture. And right now, we have the light of life, but we long for that brighter future when we will see Christ face to face. See, they groaned and God heard. At the same time, we groan. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4 tells us, for while we are still in this tent, speaking of our earthly bodies, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, 
Not that our bodies would disappear, but that our bodies would be remade into a glorified body so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by great life. Mark chapter 2, verse 20, foretold that the disciples would long for something. Jesus says, right now the bridegroom is with them, so they're not going to fast. But Jesus says there will come a time when the bridegroom is gone and the disciples will long for something more. Then they will fast. Then they will long for something. Jesus says when he is absent physically, the disciples, us, would groan for something more. We anticipate that second coming of Christ. Just as Christ came as a babe in a manger because the people had waited and longed for him, we long for his second coming. Because right now we groan because things are not as they should be. We are aware as we look at the world around us of hate and racism, of poverty, of sickness, of domestic conflicts and abuse, of crime, of ethics that some have called a culture of death, of an unjust unjust use of the law. We look at the world around us and we say things are not as they should be. We long for the light to come into our darkness. But not only do they not do right, my friend, I do not do right. Every single one of us who is honest with ourselves can admit our own struggle with sin. Every one of us could admit that things are not as they should be in this soul. Paul said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I don't know what your sin is. I don't know what your struggle is. But I know people like you and people like me say, my life is not what it should be. My life is marked by pride, selfishness. I become bitter, unforgiving, holding a grudge. Maybe I'm judgmental, I'm greedy. I gossip more than I should. Thursday was gluttony, envy. So many ways. Not only are they not as they should, but I'm not as I should. I long for the light. I long not to be unclothed, but to be clothed more fully. See, things are not as they should be, but it's also important to remember that things are not as they will be. For while we long for something different, there will be something different. Things are not as they will be. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 says, We are sealed. We're sealed for a different future. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a pledge, as a guarantee that there will be a better future. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. And we don't have time to look up all of these, but I'm giving you the references so you can go back and refer later. The first was 2 Corinthians 1.22. Here, Romans 8.23. We groan for our full adoption as sons and daughters of God. Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Our names are already written in heaven. 
Things are not as they should be. Things are not as they will be because we are sealed. We groan. Our names are already written in heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 tells us that the new has come, but has not yet been fully realized. The gift has been placed under the tree, but it's not yet been opened. We have it, but we will realize it fuller because things will be different. Acts chapter 3, verse 21, speaks of a future time when all things will be restored. And Revelation 21, verse 4, talks about how things will change from what they are now. Revelation says it this way, He will wipe every tear from their eyes, the death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. God plans a brighter future. Not only are things not as they should be, things are not as they will be, because Christ guarantees a brighter future. The light of deliverance is found in a person. God chose Moses to lead his deliverance of the Israelites. God sent his son in the person of a boy immaculately conceived and born in Bethlehem. And our future deliverance is also found in a person because Christ is returning. Amen? Amen. John chapter 14, verse 3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. When we are troubled by current darkness, we need to hold on to Jesus' words. When we feel overcome by the negativity around us, we must remember that He will come to us and take us unto Himself. But not only does this provide a personal comfort, we also realize that when others are troubled by the current darkness, we need to remind others of the promise. For 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that I shared in Sunday school. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Bible prophecy is not something to be feared. It's not something to generate nightmares. Bible prophecy is something that we use to encourage one another. Things are not as they should be. Things are not as they will be. But Jesus is coming again. At our Thanksgiving table this week, one of my family members shared that she's part of a prayer group that is believing that revival may break out very soon. And I replied, based upon the verse that I just shared with you, that any coming revival may happen after the rapture. It may be that we are taken into the presence of God, and then the world around us will realize that Jesus was true. We may be taken away, and then worldwide revival is going to break out around us. 
Because Acts chapter 3, verse 20 states that the times of refreshing that may come from God are very closely connected to him sending the Christ. Acts 3.20, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ who is appointed for you, namely Jesus. As we enter into Advent... My heart's desire is to whet your appetite. To stoke the fires of your anticipation for Christ's return. Not your anticipation for December 25th when the family gathers, when the ham is consumed, when the presents are open. But for the return of Christ. When all will be made right. I've chosen a song of response that celebrates our appetite for the Lord coming back. Now, I understand that the song is not in our hymn books, and it may not be known by all of us. However, it's a a good old gospel song. I grew up singing it, uh, and as the worship team was introduced to the song this morning, some of them knew it, some of them were vaguely familiar, Some, some said, that's brand new to me. But this is a great song from our gospel heritage that reminds us, Christ returneth. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. I'm sorry you can't turn to the page, but you can look to the screen as you sing.